following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started this evening. Welcome. Thank you for joining us uh, here and online at Fellowship Bible Church. Okay, good evening again. Isaiah 49, please, if you would take your Bible and turn there. And I think the, you want to stay for the reading or go up right now? I'm getting no answer here. Go up, Enoch says. All right, young people, you're dismissed. You can head on out for your class. Isaiah 49, please. Before we uh, read there, let me just encourage you to pray for uh, the situation of that uh, church in Canada. Different one now, you know, Grace Life Church, this one. There's another one that the pastor stood up to the authorities a few weeks ago. Now they've hauled him off to jail uh, today during service, and his brother as well. So I'm very disappointed about that in the uh, authorities up there in Canada. And I ask you to pray with us for that and that there would be a breakthrough for religious freedom uh, there in that place. Uh, The excuse, again, is covid safe gatherings, they say, and since he was having a gathering at the church that was unsafe, they hauled him off to jail. So uh, I'm fully opposed to that approach to managing this pandemic, and I trust that you will pray for those folks who are maybe going to be uh, hopefully singing uh, hymns at midnight tonight in the jail, like the Apostle Paul. Isaiah 49. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain, yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, of whom does the prophet speak? It's not really a trick question, but it is, because somebody from a Jewish perspective reading this would say, well, it's Israel, the nation. But I just wonder how the nation can restore the nation. So the New Testament makes clear that this is a reference to the Messiah who must be being addressed under the heading of the larger people group with which he has solidarity. Verse number 7, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also, also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and He has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people, 
to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them, for he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water he will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road, and my highways shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west, and these from the land of Sinim. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, and my my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your sons shall make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste shall go away from you. Lift up your eyes, look around and see. All these gather together and come to you. As I live, says the Lord, you shall surely clothe yourselves with them all as an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. For your waste and desolate places and the land of your destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children you will have, after you have lost the others, will say again in your ears, the place is too small for me. Give me a place where I may dwell. Then you will say in your heart, who has begotten these for me, since I have lost my children and am desolate, a captive and wandering to and fro? And who has brought these up? There I was, left alone. But these, where were they? Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of the righteous be delivered? But thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away and the prey of the terrible be delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you and I will save your children. I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Wow. The world will know of our God and Savior through the nation of Israel, but we have to wait yet for that just a little bit. Amen. All right, I'm going to share a couple of verses that I did not get to this morning just to... uh, read them and add them in, as it were, as a, uh, a free addendum to our message. I just wanted to share uh, two, three or four of them. The uh, section in which these uh, were situated this morning was in the section of the Book of the Living. And uh, we actually 
that's not true. It was in the Book of Life, this section, the Book of Life. And uh, we were looking at uh, some verses that say that there are people whom God has chosen for salvation from before the foundation of the world. And we looked at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. So let me actually take you there and we'll just uh, refresh where we were. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 4. While you turn there, I'm going to move this because I don't need that in the way anymore. Okay, Ephesians 1 and verse number 4 says this. I'll start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. We see there the, the fact that there is a clear text of Scripture that says that God has graciously chosen those who will come to him. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 13, Paul adds this to that notion, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. Okay, So take note of those words. From the beginning chose you, or salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Paul speaking to a church, a church made up of a number of individual members, each of those members thus chosen to be in Christ by God from eternity past, from the beginning. Then 1 Thessalonians 1.4, just a few pages before, 1 Thessalonians 1.4 says, this, Paul's remembering, giving thanks for the Thessalonian believers. They are a great joy to his heart because, he says, they've, they've, they've exercised faith, they're working out of, of love, and they have a great long pa- uh, patience, long-suffering, and, and their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, knowing, bro- beloved brethren, your election of or by God. Okay, Your election, not your choosing of God, but your election by God, God's choosing of you for this blessed benefit. And now 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 10. Paul says, Therefore I endure all things, this is 2 Timothy 2.10, all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Again, a verse referencing this idea of the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. And then I'll finally refer you to Titus 1.1. Titus 1.1 says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect. And the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. And there are others. I'm sure you can hunt them up and find them. But uh, those are the few that I wanted to refer you to this morning. 
uh, it might be worthwhile you to think uh, just for a moment about um, how does that work anyway? How does that work? Well, you know, you say, you know, do I do not do I not have a responsibility to choose to uh, repent and believe? Why, well, yes, you do. But God uses the means, as we looked in Second Thessalonians, the means of sanctification of the Spirit, belief in the truth, the proclamation of the truth, conviction of sin by the work of the Spirit, and all of this, you know, conglomeration of the intermediate means to bring you to conviction, and he does so in a way that is freely chosen by you and yet freely and infinitely wisely chosen by him. So how exactly? We'll leave you to ponder that uh, this, maybe this evening as you fall off to sleep. You figure out the mystery uh, of how, how God works in us. I know not how God's wondrous grace works. I, I just don't know, you know, and uh, the song reflects that. Amen, brother. Yeah. And that's what we should do. We don't have to. It's an interesting principle you should always keep in mind. God has his good reasons for doing everything that he's ever done. If you don't understand those good reasons, you can just rest assured that you don't have to. God understands those things, and um, you know, just be glad that the fate of the universe does not rest in your hands because uh, we would fall short slightly, a lot short, in being able to manage the affairs of the universe compared to the infinite wisdom of God. All right, so that's just a little addendum to this morning. Matthew's Gospel, please, chapter 5. This is where I was... Uh, really targeting this evening. I wanted to see if we could finish up in the next few minutes, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. <clears throat> I'm going to leave the, uh, how can I say, introduction of what came before in chapter 5 to the end by way of review. So we're not going to go back and Look at all those subsections of chapter 5, as interesting as they are and as much as I like them. Uh, we'll jump right to verse 43. We're in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says these words, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, right away, you should have a strange feeling in your mind this idea of hating your enemy, should, as a believer, ring somewhat false already without even going further. Verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes His Son... S-U-N, rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
To me, this is the most incredible of all the six statements that the Lord is going over. Remember, he has talked, beginning in verse 21, with several illustrations of what it looks like to really fulfill the law. He said in verse 20, I have not come to, or 17 through 20 actually, I have not come to destroy but to fulfill, to complete the law. And he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And he illustrates that with six examples, murder, adultery, divorce, and those that we looked at. The last of the six is loving your enemies. This is what it looks like in the believer's life who has repented and whose righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Tradition, however, had gotten so far off track that the teachers of the law were somehow with a straight face able to say, love your enemies, or love, love, your, you know, love your neighbor, sorry, love your neighbor, I'm getting myself confused. Love your neighbor and hate your enemies. They could say that and really believe it and, and, and think they were correct. But I say to that with a, with a question mark and an exclamation point, what? What? Hate your enemies? That's a virtue? That was the sin nature of these teachers and the people coming through loud and clear. So when this, is, this makes it obvious to us that when Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, he's not replicating exactly what the law of Moses was saying. What he's doing is he's reporting on the current state of Jewish tradition in each of the six cases. And he's saying, but I'm going to straighten you out now. Okay? You've been thinking it's this, but it's actually not that. This was clearly not the law of Moses he was citing. You're not going to find, I mean, if you do, let me know, but you're not going to find hate your enemies in the Old Testament on a personal, individual level. Of course, you're going to say, well, yeah, I mean, what about Amalek? We talked about them being blotted out from under heaven this morning or you know, the uh, judgment from, from God and Nahum to the Assyrians and you know, the Moabites not allowed into the camp of Israel for all these years. Isn't that, that's God pronouncing judgment upon those people. That's not the kind of interpersonal hate that the Lord is talking about here. Oh, indeed, God hates the workers of iniquity with a perfect hatred. That's almost impossible for us to have a perfect, righteous anger that doesn't devolve into sin. But I think if that kind of helps us bound, put boundaries around the context of which we're speaking, that would help us. It was a traditional teaching that had come about over the years that the people, the, the teachers of the law had given to the people, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But it's very strange because there's no need to teach depraved sinners to hate their enemies. Don't people hate their enemies naturally? It's like teaching a child to say no and mine. I don't know where they get the word. I wonder what would happen if you diligently were able to never use the word no and never use the word mine in front of your child and they could never learn those words. What would they do? 
They would express it somehow, I'm sure. Have you guys been trying to do that? You're telling me that parents have to be parents? Yeah, right. That's kind of how it works, isn't it? Well, uh, there's no need to teach depraved sinners what their na- nature already, already wants them to do. So, you know, they would think up that kind of stuff all on their own without any help from a so-called teacher. Now, to be sure, these, the people who are listening to the teachers say this wouldn't mind having the reinforcement of the teacher saying it. I mean, listen... If you're sitting there in the, in the synagogue in your chair or on the floor or whatever and you have, you're harboring hatred toward an enemy uh, in your heart and the scribe who's up there explaining the law says, you know, you, you should love your neighbors, but you may hate your enemies. You're like, oh man, I'm, I'm reinforced in my hatred. I'm just going to keep on living the way that I'm living. Now, go back to Leviticus 19.18, the command to love your enemy. Actually, the the command to love your neighbor first. Leviticus in 19.18, Leviticus 19 and 18, it says this, You shall not take vengeance nor bear a grudge against the children of your people. So right away, we've, we've already seen about vengeance, haven't we? That was just before about the eye for the eye, the tooth for the tooth, and all of that. So don't take vengeance or bear a grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay, if you need, if you need a reason to love your neighbor, it's because God says so. It's because God is God. And he's commanding you, you shall keep my statutes, you shall not let your lifestyle, all that stuff. He goes on and continues on with the law. Okay, command of God. Do not bear a grudge, do not take vengeance, but instead love your neighbor as yourself. This is a common, commonly repeated uh, teaching in the Bible, isn't it? Remember where the Lord taught it? Our Lord Jesus himself and his earthly ministry? If you... If you are of a type that wants to know what Bible verses or addresses should I memorize, I would encourage this one, Matthew 22, 37 to 40. Matthew 22, 37 to 40. 22, 37 says this. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Those are the two pegs on the wall, and all the commandments come under those, hang on those pegs. Either it's, it's, it's about loving God or it's about loving neighbors. That's it. It's about the first four commandments on the tablets of the law, about God, or it's about the last six, your neighbor, interpersonal relations, lying and, and thieving and all those things. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40. But you also see it in other passages. Let me just review a couple of them for you. Matthew 19, verse 19, honor your father and your mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That was to the rich young ruler. Or uh, James chapter 2, 8, I think this is speaking about the law of liberty or the royal law, 
Let's look at James chapter 2 and verse 8. It says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. Or Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14 says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13, verse 8. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, like honoring your parents, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This is clearly God's standard of conduct between people. Our conduct toward fellow human beings is measured by this phrase. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? The law did not allow hating your neighbor. In fact, it was quite the opposite. But think with me for a moment about a certain incident that happened with the Lord in Luke 10. Luke chapter 10. There a lawyer rises up and asks Jesus a question. And the thrust of the question was something like this. Why, yes, we agree that we're supposed to love our neighbors. That's fine. But those who are not our neighbors, then we can do whatever we want with them. So who is our neighbor anyway? Because if I'm supposed to love my neighbor and then I, I categorize a bunch of people as non-neighbors, then I can treat them some different way than love. See that? It's a, it's a, it's a technicality, right? But yeah, it is an escape clause, a footnote. Ah, see, neighbors. Well, they're not neighbors. So, <clears throat> well, listen to the parable that our Lord taught to answer this very question in Luke 10. 25, behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See, he shouldn't have asked the question. He should have quit while he was ahead, for one thing. For another, when you're looking for like these kind of escape clauses or these footnotes or asterisks or whatever, you're on the wrong track. You're already starting off on the wrong foot. Who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived, and these are priests and Levites, supposed to be spiritual people, right? 
when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. That was what was missing from the other ones, the love for the neighbor, the compassion, an expression of that. So he went to him, bandaged bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. What a blessing to read that. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he, back to the lawyer, said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. So what is Jesus saying? Your neighbor is probably the person that you don't think is your neighbor. Your neighbor is the person that you don't think of as your neighbor. You might also ask the question if you're trying to, uh, you know, find little ways through this, who's my enemy? In a way to try to categorize people into one group or the other. But all of that, who's my neighbor, who's my enemy, all of that violates the spirit of what Jesus is talking about here. Yes, there are enemies, but you do not look at them in the old way that you looked at them before you were saved. Make sense? Your outlook has entirely changed. People who abused you before, uh, persecuted you, were you were a POW in 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 an internment camp in Japan, great examples of that. People coming to salvation and forgiving those who who mistreated them and so on. Um, You don't look at your enemies the same way when you're a child of God. Why? Because God has implanted something of his nature inside of you, and he looks at his enemies differently than we look at our enemies. We look at our enemies with, you know, I'm saying we, humanly. Vengeance is all we can see. All we can see is red, right? We're just mad at whatever they are. And and this occurs intergenerationally so that one generation hates the next, which hates the next and the McCoys and the Hatfields illustration that I used before. And they don't even know why they hate each other probably after a while. Or maybe they have some explanations, but it's just foolishness. Now, I was reading uh, commentator R.T. France on this. He writes in the New International Commentary on the New Testament, And he said this, Jesus' contrasting statement goes far beyond the purview of Leviticus 19.18 and introduces a concept of undiscriminating love. With me so far? 19.18 and Leviticus said, love your neighbor. Jesus is introducing a concept of undiscriminating love, which includes loving more than your neighbor. And then he says this, this this concept cannot easily be derived from the Pentateuch at all. Now, he later points out a few verses that indicate God's care and people's care for outsiders in the Old Testament, but his value judgment, I think, is is overstated. What do I mean by that? Have I confused you? What he's saying is, you can't find love your enemies in the Old Testament. I think he's wrong. Let's look at a few. 
Look at Exodus 22, 21. We get this idea that the Old Testament is, as one commentator put it years ago, a law with a blasting character to it. It's just mere legalism and it's, and it's you know, absent of grace and love and kindness. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Exodus 22 and verse 21. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way, and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will become hot. God is not pleased with people who hate and murder and have enemies, and all of that. Terrible. Uh, 23, chapter 23 of the same book, Exodus, verse 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. What? Why wouldn't you despoil your enemy of his ox or donkey, or just shoot the thing just to spite him. Why not? Well, the law says you don't. You take it back to him. It belongs to him. It's his property, and you are not to mistreat him. You know what this would do? This would tend to bring the people together instead of drive them into factions that would always be warring with one another. Look at 23.9. And you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Or how about Leviticus 19 again, only this time verse 10. Leviticus 19 verse 10. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Yes, even... For a Moabite stranger. Right, brother? Yeah, exactly. How about uh, Leviticus 19.33? And if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Or Leviticus 24, verse 22. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for the one from your own country, for I am the Lord your God. Wow. The Lord Jesus is not making up some new thing. This is an old, this is old news. He's just reminding them, you have strayed so far from this law. You've said, yeah, love your neighbors, but it's okay to hate your enemies. In fact, it's, it's written in here in a command form. Hate your enemies. It's like a virtue to hate your enemies. And Jesus is saying nothing could be farther from the truth. There's no virtue there. <clears throat> of course, these passages don't always use the word love to express these ideas, but remember 1934, Leviticus did. You shall love him. 
Beyond that, let's look at a couple other passages, not in the Pentateuch, but in in the Old Testament. Uh, Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24, verse 17. This is something that I have mentioned to my children when it is appropriate and has been something that has been convicting to me. I trust it will be to you as well. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. So don't rejoice at the calamity of your enemies. That's what we're saying. Do not rejoice at that. Uh, Proverbs 25, 21. I think you'll recognize this. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Those words are echoed in Romans chapter 12. Are they not? Show compassion and respect for your enemy, and in so doing, you will heap shame upon him. So Jesus clarifies that the real intention of the law was that you would love your enemies as well as your neighbor, and why? Look at verse 45. Now, he, I know I'm kind of going quickly over some of these phrases here. Verse 44, I'll just mention, Jesus expresses love for enemies. How do you do that? You bless those who curse. You do good to those who hate you. You pray for those who use you. Why? Because you are to be like your Father in heaven. Okay, You are to exercise grace toward enemies, not harsh, blasting retribution or letter-of-the-law kind of thinking. It it was not a law that encouraged or allowed people to hate others in the Old Testament. That would be a violation against the commandment to murder, against the commandment that prohibited murder already we've discussed uh, last week or uh, two weeks ago. So such love toward your enemies makes you be like God himself, who shows such kindness on his enemies that it's hard to fathom. He gives rain to wicked people and to righteous people. He could just send rain on the properties of the people who are his followers, right? He could. He could make light to shine only in Goshen if he so desired. But he doesn't. He sends sunshine and rain both for the just and the unjust. He gives food and peace and a measure of prosperity and all of life's good gifts like spouses and children and friends and love and salvation for sure. He gives all of that. God loves his enemies and he asks us to do the same, to be like our heavenly father, to be children like chips off the old block as it were. This seems to be counterintuitive, doesn't it? To love your enemies. Love enemies. 
those two words don't seem to fit together in the same sentence, if you think about it, right? But loving enemies is exactly what God does, isn't it? If while we were enemies, God reconciled us, Just think on that for a minute. But the idea of loving enemies, again, seems paradoxical or counterintuitive. But there's one reason why it seems counterintuitive to us. Because God is very unlike us in our natural state. God loves his enemies. We naturally do not. So for us to come from this place to this place, to be like God, is a big transformation. But that's the the transformation that's required of of, of those who would be morally perfect before God, to be like our Father in heaven who is perfect. So loving enemies is only paradoxical because we are unlike God. If our minds could get more like God's mind, we would understand the greatness of loving your enemies. A man is not known to be great if he hates his enemies. He's known to be great if he supersedes hatred and he moves to love for his enemies. We would agree, I hope, that Jesus is the perfect example of God on earth. He was loving toward his enemies. Exemplified how? Well, at the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And probably a zillion other times throughout his life. But we know that Jesus also rebuked people who were wrong. And so, even his enemies, so to speak, the Pharisees. You remember Matthew 23? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Eight times he did that. Woe to you, lawyers, Jewish teachers and preachers of the law. Jesus rebuked those ones. You know, he he even rebuked the sons of thunder. Remember? He said it was Luke 9. Lord, should we call down fire from heaven upon them? And Jesus said, you don't know what kind of manner of spirit you are of. You need to knock it off, basically, is what he's saying. Love in Jesus existed perfectly for neighbors and for enemies, but love for enemies doesn't mean that you are kind of that squishy, you know, Play-Doh kind of love that doesn't, say anything or do anything when there's a need. You might confront somebody. You might tell them that they're wrong, and that is an expression of love. Not the kind of squishy, don't say anything strong kind of idea that's promoted today. But Jesus was that example. He loved, and yet he told the truth. And we can do the same without feeling like we're out of sync with what loving our enemies looks like. Verses 46 and 47. 
Uh, This is really just one idea here in these two verses, and that is it's not surprising or super special that people love their friends. Everybody loves their friends, you know. It's amazing, and every, it seems like, as you observe, just kind of stand back and look at every uh, sphere of life, work, politics, school, church, hopefully not church so much, but in some places, everybody kind of divides into their little, what, what do we call them? Clicks. Their little groups. They love their friends. You know, maybe sometimes it's, it's innocent enough, it's, you know, all the young people are in one group in the church and, uh, because they don't feel like they fit in with the older people. And uh, at work, you know, people with similar interests. You notice how people who have a mindset of, you know, a happy hour on Friday always kind of seem to get together. And they, they kind of, they find each other fairly quickly, don't they, in, in the workplace if they get new, newly introduced to a place. And so they have that. They love their friends. There's nothing super special about that. That's baseline human behavior, even for wicked people. It's when Christians show compassion on their enemies that it's remarkable. That's the remarkable thing. So Jesus says, if you love those who love you, if you uh, greet those who greet you, no big deal. I mean, that's obvious. We, we move beyond that ethic to a higher ethic of loving our enemies. Let's pause here as we close in just a moment to ask if there are some people that you have on your enemies list. Maybe you should ask yourself, why do I even have an enemies list? Whether that list is written down or it's in your head, it needs to be deleted. Okay? Deleted. Not recycled, where you can go back to the recycle bin and pick it out. No, you, you, you hit the keystroke on the computer. Uh, in, in the case of Windows, it's Shift-Delete. Are you sure you want to do this? These files aren't going to be recoverable after you do this. That's what you should do with the enemies list. Shift-Delete, not recycle. You need to love your neighbors. You need to love your enemies. If you do that, you will be like God. Do you get that? You want to be like God? Then love your enemies, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. MacArthur had been preaching on forgiveness, and one of the things he says, you're never more like God than when what? You forgive. Some of you have been listening, I can see. You're never more like God when you love your enemies, either. I'm not trying to rank. You know, you're never more like God's statements, but you are like God when you do these things that God does apparently paradoxical things. Now, as we kind of close on chapter 5 and just wrap up the whole thing, if properly keeping the law before Christ's death, that is in the, you know, during the time of Moses and all that, if that meant this kind of God-like behavior, an in- internal battle against sin, and that's what Jesus is saying. The law has always meant fight adultery in the heart, fight Murder, beginning in the heart. Don't go with this you know, terrible teaching that it's okay to divorce and making all these oaths and, and treating your enemies poorly and all of those things. God expected an internal kind of heart attitude in his religion, if you will, if I could use that term. 
how much more it is in this age when we have the completed revelation, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us in a more, I, I call it a more complete way than even the Old Testament saint had. I know there's a debate about that, but with the revelation that we have, that the Spirit has to work with, it seems to me we have tools in our toolbox that are sharper maybe than the ones that the Old Testament saint had. But in any case, if God expected them to live that way, he certainly expects us to live this way. Will we engage in that inner struggle against sin as well as watching our outward obedience? Ponder the masterful structure, too, of the sermon up to this point. Jesus introduced blessings upon those who follow him. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, and, and so on. Blessed are the peacemakers. Did all that. And then he told us that he came to fulfill the law, and evidently that means that we have a part in that, in the sense that we, we ought also to have lives that are marked by righteousness. Fulfillment of the law is not merely uh, appearing to do what you're told, but actually to be internally the kind of person who keeps the law in all of its depth and richness. Verse 20 tells us that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees if we are to see the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus gives these six illustrations. You have to be fighting sin in the heart, not just in the external behaviors. Okay, You have to be diligent. When you're in your quiet time and the thoughts come that you're struggling with, you better be struggling with them. You better be engaging the battle. You better be starting to cut off murder before it begins, adultery before it starts, thoughts of divorce before they run amok, oaths before they exit your mouth. Vengeance is to be left to the Lord and not done by us. And We are to love our enemies and do good to those who misuse us. Those are the kinds of things that we have to be engaged in in our hearts and in our minds. And Jesus summarizes all of this by saying in verse 48, which, by the way, connects back to verse 20. 20 says, your righteousness has to exceed. In fact, verse 48, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. This sounds like a lot like, uh, be holy for I am holy, doesn't it? That is the basic point that Jesus has been saying all along. This is the kind of holiness that God has, that God is, that he exists in. What a high calling, the moral perfections of God. Of course, we can't reach to the infinite perfections of God, his omniscience, omnipotence, all those, you know, omnisapience, all those things. That's way off of the charts for us. It's impossible. But as far as moral conduct, moral thinking, those perfections are communicable to us and are to be attained by God's people. Now, God does not lower his standard. In fact, he cannot lower his standard for us, his standard of righteousness. Rather, our, our level of righteousness needs to be lifted up to his. And since we cannot do that heavy lifting, we look at this command and we must appeal to Christ to do it for us. We simply can't you know, do this. You, you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He doesn't explain all the details here, but right there, if you're sitting in his audience, you're thinking, Lord, I can't do that. That's utterly impossible. 
Look, he doesn't have to say every word or explain every little detail to get his audience to be thinking these heavy thoughts like, man, that's not how my life looks. Murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, vengeance, going the extra mile, loving him. That's not how my life looks. I've got a problem. I need something. That's what his point is. This is an impossible standard. We fall short of it. And the Sermon on the Mount helps us recognize this and to seek, drives us to seek a righteousness that is beyond ourselves to meet the requirement of the righteous God. Hebrews 12, 14 says, without holiness, no one will see God. Remember that verse? I believe that verse is true. But believers in Christ are granted that kind of holiness that they might see God, that they will see God. We have that righteousness of Christ imputed to us so that we can be acceptable before God. So the sermon is a very important piece of literature for the church. It's not relegated to another age. It's not um, you know, just for the law or just for the future kingdom or whatever. It does have a deep application for us, and we should take it and really think it through. Now, don't take this and just dismiss it. That's just evidence that you're like the Pharisees. Well, I don't have to deal with that. You know, some technicality gets me out of it. No, that's not how it works, my friends. This is the teachings of Jesus, and uh, they are ever and always applicable to us. Let's pray. Lord, we've come to the end again of another Lord's Day, and with these convicting thoughts, with these helpful thoughts, with these gracious thoughts that you have provided a standard of righteousness to us that if we accept that you would then freely accept us, as it were. And we thank you for that. Lord, thank you that in the end of all things, your people shall be made righteous in all departments of their lives. And we can't wait, Lord, looking forward to it. Lord, for those who are maybe dampened in their spirits by things that have happened today or this week, encourage them today, Lord, and may their hearts be lifted up. In Jesus' name, amen.